The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 22nd. In today's news, President Trump's erratic behavior is increasingly alarming his own top advisors. Justin Trudeau survives as Canada's prime minister, but Bibi Netanyahu may not be so lucky. And climate change is causing most baby sea turtles to be born as girls. But first, the big idea. President Trump's effort to pressure Ukraine for information he could use against political rivals came as he was being urged to adopt a hostile view of that country by its regional adversaries, namely Russian President Vladimir Putin. Trump's conversations with Putin, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, and others reinforced his perception of Ukraine as a hopelessly corrupt country, one that Trump now also appears to believe sought to undermine him in the 2016 U.S. election. Neither of those foreign leaders specifically encouraged Trump to see Ukraine as a potential source of damaging information about Joe Biden, nor did they describe Kiev as complicit in an unsubstantiated 2016 election conspiracy theory. But their disparaging depictions of Ukraine reinforced Trump's perceptions of the country and fed a dysfunctional dynamic in which White House officials struggled to persuade Trump to support the fledgling government instead of exploiting it for political purposes. The role played by Putin and Orban, a hard-right leader who has often allied himself closely with the Kremlin's positions, was described last week in closed-door testimony by George Kent, a deputy assistant secretary of state. Current and former U.S. officials who saw this play out described what happened to my colleagues Greg Miller, Greg Jaffe, John Hudson, and Ellen Nakashima. Kent, in his testimony, cited the influence of Putin and Orban as a factor that soured Trump on Ukrainians' new president, Volodymyr Zelensky, leading up to their July 25th phone call. Other U.S. officials emphasized that while Putin and Orban denigrated Ukraine, Trump's decision to seek damaging material about Biden was more directly driven by Trump's own impulses and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. The efforts to poison Trump's views towards Zelensky, though, were anticipated by national security officials at the highest levels in the White House. But the voices of Putin and Orban took on added significance this year because of the departure or declining influence of those who had sought to blunt their influence over Trump. Officials say that Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and White House Chief of Staff John Kelly leaving was a big problem in this regard. Both of them had backed U.S. military assistance to Ukraine, but were no longer in a position to protect the stream of funding when Trump ordered that it be suspended. National Security Advisor John Bolton was also a fervent backer of Ukraine and its conflict with Russia, but his relationship with Trump had deteriorated rapidly earlier in the year, and he was pushed out last month. A former White House official said that over time, you just saw a wearing down of the defenses as Trump moved more in Putin's direction. A current U.S. official, notes that American policy for years has been built around containing malign Russian influence in Eastern Europe. This current U.S. government official added that Trump's apparent susceptibility to the arguments he hears from Putin and Orban is, quote, an example of the president himself under malign influence and being steered by it. The effort to keep distance between Trump and Orban, which had been successful for a long time, fell apart with the ascendancy of Mick Mulvaney, who became acting White House Chief of Staff in January. 
Mulvaney is sympathetic to Orban and his hard-right views and skepticism of European institutions. In Congress, Mulvaney's former colleagues in the Freedom Caucus, which he used to lead, backed up an effort pushed by Orban last year to kill a small U.S. grant designed to nurture independent media outlets in Hungary. Mulvaney's involvement in approving the Orban visit to the White House, where they talked about Ukraine, was one of several instances in which he overruled national security officials. At the same time, Mulvaney also facilitated an arrangement in which Trump directed other diplomats, including the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sunland, to work with Giuliani on his Ukraine agenda. Meanwhile, the Russians continue their quiet war on America. Facebook announced last night that it removed a network of Russian-backed accounts that were posing as locals weighing in on political issues in swing states. The Russian accounts praised Trump and attacked Joe Biden as corrupt. Facebook said the network bears all the hallmarks of the same Kremlin-backed group that interfered in the 2016 election. The new frontier is Instagram. The Russian accounts, some of which have been tracked back to the Internet Research Agency, are using the photo-sharing app to post more and more content about U.S. politics, and they're putting up memes targeting the leading Democratic presidential contenders. This operation has demonstrated a sophisticated understanding of the schisms inside the Democratic Party. One of the active Russian accounts that was taken down yesterday portrayed itself as a black voter in Michigan, using the Black Lives Matter hashtag to hammer Biden for comments he's made about racial issues. We've seen this movie before. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg told a group of Washington Post reporters in an interview that the social network is in a much better place now to stop disinformation campaigns than it was four years ago. But Mark says the problem posed by disinformation has worsened since 2016, and he attributes that in part to a poor initial response by the U.S. government to the threat. He said because the U.S. government didn't have a particularly strong response to Russia after what they did in 2016, it sent the signal to Moscow and other countries that they could and should get in on the act as well. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Trump lashed out against the impeachment process during a 71-minute extemporaneous speech at a cabinet meeting yesterday. He called on Republicans to get tougher, and he said the Constitution's emoluments clause, which bars him from taking money from foreigners, is, quote, phony. Trump then sought to defend himself from emolument clause charges by making baseless accusations against his predecessors, accusing both Barack Obama and George Washington of using their offices to enrich themselves and conduct private business deals. There's no evidence they did so. Behind the scenes, Trump's erratic and bombastic behavior is causing growing alarm among White House officials, Republican lawmakers, and major donors. They all want a more disciplined response to impeachment from the White House. The president has told several friends in recent days that he believes Democrats are more divided than they appear, and he thinks that they may not impeach him after all, according to people who have spoken with him. Many Republicans, however, have told officials in the White House and allies in Trump's orbit that they cannot mount effective arguments in defense of the president. Meanwhile, a Republican motion in Congress to censure House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, Democrat from California, over his handling of the impeachment inquiry was tabled on a party-line vote last night. And exactly one month after she formally launched the impeachment inquiry, Speaker Nancy Pelosi distributed what she called a fact sheet outlining what her office called gross abuses of presidential power that we already know about. 
It's another big day today on the Hill related to the impeachment investigation. Bill Taylor, the top official at the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, is scheduled to appear for a deposition in the next few hours. Trump also announced during that cabinet meeting that went on and on that a limited number of U.S. troops will remain in Syria after all. They will man a garrison on the nation's southern border with Jordan. Sources say Trump has approved keeping 200 U.S. troops in the oil-producing area of the country, both to keep it out of the hands of the Islamic State and to prevent it from being claimed by the Syrian government, which is steadily recovering territory with backing from the Russian military. Number two, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Canada survived scandal and missteps to win a plurality of seats in Parliament, but he failed to retain his majority, leaving his government dependent on the support of smaller parties to advance his agenda. Trudeau's Liberal Party won more seats than Andrew Scheer's Conservatives, but fell short of the 170 seats needed for a majority in the 338-seat House of Commons. The election will create Canada's fourth minority government in 15 years, and it's a setback for Trudeau, the 47-year-old Liberal leader who swept to power four years ago in a landslide. Without a majority, Trudeau could try to pass bills on a case-by-case basis, negotiating for the support of one or more of the other parties. He could also establish a formal coalition in which parties share cabinet seats, but such arrangements are pretty rare up north. A pair of third parties appear to have won enough seats to help the Liberals stay in power, but the first test of a minority government is something, this is a, a fun Canadian tradition, it's called the speech from the throne. And the leader puts forth his agenda. It's like a State of the Union address. But then it's put to the floor for an up or down vote. If Trudeau loses that vote, his government collapses and he's out. The governor general, who represents the Queen of England in Canada, could then call on other parties to try to form a government to avoid another election. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave up his struggle to form a governing coalition after last month's dead heat election, opening up a possible path to power for his rival, former Army Chief of Staff Benny Gantz. The Israeli president said he will give Gantz a chance to assemble a majority of lawmakers, making him the first person other than Netanyahu authorized to form a government in more than a decade. Gantz will get 28 days to do what Netanyahu could not, entice at least 61 members of the Israeli parliament, known as the Knesset, to support his bid. Gantz's success is far from certain. Israel's complex political system all but ensures that the final outcome is not likely to be clear for several weeks and that a third election in less than a year may be required. Still, it wasn't a very good 70th birthday gift for Netanyahu. Number three, the warming climate is making baby sea turtles almost all girls. Humans still don't know why the environment shapes the gender of lizards, crocodiles, and various species of sea turtles but it does. Even slight shifts in the land can warp their reproductive fates. And as the earth gets hotter, turtle hatchlings worldwide are skewing dangerously female, making the animals an unwitting gauge for the warming climate. On the tiny West African island nation of Cape Verde, home to a sixth of the planet's nesting loggerheads, the disparity has become stark. A new study from British researchers shows that 84% of youngsters are now female, Populations in Florida and Australia are also showing dramatic sex imbalances, causing growing alarm that creatures which outlasted the dinosaurs are themselves plotting toward extinction. The past five years have been the hottest on record for the globe. Roughly a tenth of the planet has warmed beyond 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. 
That's the point at which scientists say rising temperatures can trigger irreversible changes to ecosystems. If the trends continue at the lowest projections of scientific experts, researchers estimate that fewer than 1% of Cape Verde's sea turtles will be born male by the end of this century. Higher rises could wipe them out completely. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 22nd. I'm coming to you this morning from the great state of Texas. I'm here to watch the Washington Nationals play the Houston Astros in Game 1 and Game 2 of the World Series. I'm taking vacation days so that I can stay up late to cheer on the Nats. But you'll be in good hands with my colleagues, and I'll talk to you in a couple of days.